sometimes, not often, but sometimes, something is written that has the power to change world history. When Thomas Paine published his 50-page pamphlet, Common Sense, in January of 1776, that little pamphlet helped ignite a revolution that would give birth to a new country, the United States. Harriet Beecher Stowe made a similar impact when she published her novel, Uncle Tom's Cabin. It was an immediate success, and, and it proved to be one of the most influential things ever written in support of the cause of the abolition of slavery. In fact, it is said that when Abraham Lincoln met Stowe in 1862, he looked at her and said, so this is the little lady who started this great war. And then there are other books which haven't started wars, but have made an indelible mark on world history. Just think about the influence of Plato's Republic or Charles Darwin's On the Origin of Species or Adam Smith's The Wealth of Nations or John Fox's Book of Martyrs. Now, these works may not have inspired a political revolution or ignited a civil war, but they did make a deep and lasting impact on all who read them. And yet, for as great and influential as these books have been, there is perhaps no work that has had a deeper or more lasting influence than St. Paul's letter to the Romans. Now, Paul is sometimes referred to as the, the first and greatest Christian theologian, in fact, one scholar goes so far as to say that Paul is the man who invented Christian theology. And the book of Romans is often regarded as the greatest and most comprehensive presentation of his thought. It's long captured the thinking and imagination of historians and theologians and philosophers. And yet for all its fame and all its intellectual renown, it's important to remember that this book was not intended as a, a treatise for scholars to analyze and debate. No, it was written to, and it was written for, the average, everyday people who had converted to Christianity and had joined the church in Rome in the first century. To quote the Franciscan preacher, Raniero Cantalamesa, Romans was not written for a narrow circle of scholars, but for all God's beloved in Rome, made up for the most part of simple and illiterate people. Its aim was to build up the faith. Or as Paul himself puts it in his opening remarks, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. So Romans, this greatest of letters, it wasn't intended for only a select few. It was intended for all those who are loved by God and called to be saints. In other words, for every person who calls himself or herself a follower of Jesus. If you are a Christian, then this letter is for you. But you might ask, what exactly am I supposed to get out of Romans? Well, one answer to that question would be that Romans is written to give you a, a clear and proper understanding of the most essential truths of God. 
Romans is a summary of the gospel, which as Paul says in the very first verse, that he was set apart and called as an apostle to proclaim. Have you ever wondered what it was that was so revolutionary in Paul's teaching? So revolutionary that in Acts chapter 17, he's accused of turning the world upside down. Do you want to know what are the essentials of Christian belief and, and why they matter so much? Well, then read Romans. That's what it was written for. And as John Calvin once said, if we have gained a true understanding of this epistle, we have an open door to all the most profound treasures of Scripture. But Romans isn't just about doctrine. It's not just a letter telling you what is true and what you should believe. It's also a letter that contains profound truths about how you ought to live and why. In the latter section of Romans, especially, Paul speaks clearly and directly about what it means to live as a Christian. What is distinctive about the Christian way of life? Today, we, we live during a time of great moral confusion. And in that way, we, we share something in common with those ancient Roman Christians. They lived also during a time of great moral confusion. That's another reason why they and why we need this letter, to help us know not only what is true, but what we ought to value and how we ought to live. But neither of those reasons really gets at the heart of what this letter is all about. Because at the end of the day, the letter to the Romans, it's not a treatise on Christian doctrine. It's not a manual of Christian behavior. At the end of the day, it is, as J.I. Packer says, a personal letter to each of God's children. Read Romans, Packer says this way, and you will find that it has unique power to search out and deal with things which are so much a part of you that ordinarily you do not give them a thought. Your sinful habits and attitudes, your instinct for hypocrisy, your constant unbelief, your half-heartedness, worldliness, fearfulness, despondency. And you will also find that this shattering letter has unique power to evoke the joy assurance, boldness, liberty, and ardor of spirit, which God both requires of and gives to those who love Him. Over the next 16 sessions, we'll be following Packer's advice as we read and study this book together. We'll pay attention to what it is saying to us about what it is true and what we ought to believe. We'll let it form our understanding of the good life and how we ought to live but most importantly, we'll be reading and studying it as a personal letter to us, those who are loved by God and called to be saints. Now, as we begin this study, I should probably say something about its structure and why I chose to divide it up the way that I did. There are many possible ways of dividing Romans up, and, and most people who write commentaries or Bible studies on it, they'll come up with their own divisions, and those can be very helpful. For instance, I, I quite like the way that Dale Bruner lays it out in his commentary. He identifies an introductory section in chapter 1 and a, a conclusion in chapters 15 and 16, and then he divides everything in between into five simple sections on human sin, divine grace, Christian life, 
divine election, and practical Christian ethics. Now, like I said, that's a, that's a clear and logical way of dividing things up. And if I were more creative, I'd probably try to come up with my own divisions. But instead of doing that, I've decided to divide this study up according to the natural chapter divisions of the book. So next session, we'll look at chapter one, then chapter two, and then chapter three, and so on and so forth. Of course, these divisions, they weren't part of the original letter. It wasn't St. Paul, but actually a 13th century Archbishop of Canterbury who came up with the chapters. Still, they make sense and they're easy to follow. So that's what we'll be doing. Finally, before we begin, I'd like to say something about the title of this study. In Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, Paul gives what many interpreters take to be the basic thesis statement of this entire letter. When he says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. The primary theme of this entire letter, what Paul is endeavoring to explain throughout 16 chapters, is this gospel, this message of good news that he has been called to proclaim. And he doesn't hesitate to speak about it boldly and at great length, as this letter attests, because as he says, it's the power of God for salvation to all who believe. For, he says, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed. Now, what does Paul mean by this phrase, the righteousness of God? In the original Greek of Romans, the word for righteousness, dikaiosune, it's a word that can also be translated as justice. In fact, when Romans was translated into Latin, that's precisely the word that was used, justitia, justice. And just as it is today, so at that time, justice or righteousness, it was a big deal. In fact, the word justitia, justice, it was often placed on Roman coins along with an image of the Greek goddess Dike to symbolize just how, just how highly Romans Roman citizens and Roman emperors valued the quality of justice. The emperors, they, they touted the righteousness and justice of their laws and rule. And philosophers like Plato and Aristotle and Seneca debated the meaning of justice and how a person could become righteous or just. If you lived in Rome during the time that Paul wrote this letter, you would have been intimately familiar with all with this word and its importance. But when people in the ancient world spoke of, of righteousness or justice, they meant something different from what Paul means. For most Romans, justice was a matter of, as Cicero famously put it, of rendering to each his or her due. Righteousness then consists in rewarding the good and punishing the bad. That was how Romans thought of it. That's how they understood it. And not just Romans, ancient Jews of Paul's time, they, they often thought the same way. And they ascribed this quality of righteousness or justice to God. As one very influential Jewish writing of the time, the wisdom of Solomon puts it, 
You, O God, are righteous, and you rule all things righteously. Which means in the context of the wisdom of Solomon that God rendered to each according to his or her due. God will bless the righteous, and he will punish the wicked, because God is righteous. Now, Paul, on the other hand, he seems to have something different in mind, because he says that the righteousness of God is revealed. It's shown not in his punishment of the bad and reward of the good, but in the gospel, in the good news of Jesus' death and resurrection and the gift of the Holy Spirit. What Paul is saying, in other words, is you can't really understand the true justice, true righteousness of God until you understand what he has done through the gift of his Son and Spirit. You think you know what it means to be just. You think you know how things work. You think you know what God is like. But I'm here to tell you, Paul is saying, that you have no idea. Until you have come to truly understand the gospel, you can't even begin to understand the true nature of things. Paul says that you can't understand the righteousness of God until you understand the gospel. And then when you do, it will change everything. Uh, nearly 15 centuries after Paul wrote this letter, the Protestant reformer Martin Luther, he echoed this sentiment when he talked about, he talked about his own struggles with understanding this verse in Romans. I questioned, he said, this passage for a long time, and I labored over it for the expression, righteousness of God, it barred my way. This phrase was customarily explained to mean that the righteousness of God is a virtue by which he is himself righteous and he condemns sinners. But as often as I read this passage, I wished that God had never revealed the gospel. For who could love a God who was angry, judged, and condemned people? Uh, Luther says that he continued to puzzle and wrestle over this verse and its meaning in that phrase, and then suddenly he came to realize that he had understood it all wrong. He had allowed his preconceptions of justice to determine his understanding of the gospel instead of the other way around. And then when he finally came to understand it rightly, then he said, then the entire Holy Scripture became clear to me, and heaven itself was open to me. Now, I don't know whether this study of Romans will have quite that dramatic of an impact on you. I can't promise that the heavens will open and the entire scriptures will at once become clear, but I can promise that if you devote yourself to this book, then just like Luther and just like thousands of others before him and after him, your life will be changed as you discover the very, very good news of the righteousness of God.